Grace you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is the first commandment, the first word, that's found in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. I'll read those again. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray that you would teach us what it means to serve you with singleness of heart, to worship you only, to renounce and shatter the idols that surround us and seek to enslave us. Teach us to walk in freedom, serving you, the one living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten words begin with a snippet of narrative. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That little summary of the story of the Exodus is attached specifically to the first commandment. The reason why God wants Israel to serve and worship him only and have no other gods before his face is because he's the one who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That narrative is applied, it is attached to the first commandment, but it really sets the tone for the entirety of the Decalogue. God speaks as the God of the Exodus in all of the ten words. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is the rationale that the Lord gives for all of the commandments that he gives to Israel. Because he is the God who brought them from Egypt, they're not to have any images. Because he bore them from Egypt, they are to bear his name with the weight it deserves. Because he gave them rest by bringing them out of Egypt, they're supposed to observe Sabbath, not only by resting, but by giving rest. It's because the Lord brought them out of the house of bondage that Israel is to avoid killing and adultery, and theft, and false witness, and coveting. Israel's entire life is shaped by that story that they have experienced, that they're living. They're supposed to be the people of the Exodus. Their entire corporate life is supposed to express the fact that they've been brought out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That snippet of narrative is a narrative of liberation. I brought you from the land of slavery. I brought you into freedom. But when we look at the contents of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, we might be tempted to think that there's some kind of shift going on there, that the Lord is playing a trick on us. He says he brought us out of the land of slavery, out of the house of slavery, But then when we get to Sinai, he does nothing but tells us what we cannot do. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this other thing. All these do nots. Exodus means freedom. Exodus means liberation. But it seems that Sinai means a new slavery. What good is it if we've been brought out of slavery to Pharaoh, if we've just been brought under the slavery of an even more powerful ruler. 
Yahweh, the God of the Exodus. Is Sinai just a new form of slavery? If we look at this commandment, the first word, in the context of the entire Bible and in the context of ancient religion, we can see why this first word is not a word of slavery, a word of enslavement, but a declaration of independence, a word of liberation, a word appropriate to a people who have just been rescued from bondage. Not a new bondage, but this is the way they are to walk in freedom. What was it like to live in a polytheistic world? What was it like to have dozens, hundreds of gods that surround you? What was it like to try to serve these hundreds and dozens or hundreds of God and satisfy them all? You couldn't possibly do it. If you satisfied Diana, Jupiter gets jealous. If you worship Baal, you're ignoring Molech, and he might take his revenge. The gods of the ancient world were not faithful gods. They were fickle, changeable. They took delight in tripping up human beings. They took delight in enslaving human beings. To live in a world of many gods, as ancient people did, was it to live in a world of fear, a world not of freedom, but a world of slavery. The Bible tells us that Israel worshipped Egypt's gods while they were in Egypt. That's in Joshua chapter 24. At the end of Joshua's life, he gives this speech as he's dying. And he reminds Israel that they used to serve false gods on the other side of the river when they were in Ur of the Chaldees before Abraham was called out. And they served false gods when they were in Egypt. And the plagues were partly designed, the plagues of Egypt were partly designed to wean Israel away from worship of, Israel, of Egypt's gods. The Lord came and stretched out his mighty arm, punishing both Egyptians and Israelites initially, so that the Israelites would think, well, as long as God is punishing the gods of Egypt, we'd better get on God's good side. We'd better put away the gods of Egypt and serve him. The plagues are designed to liberate Israel from slavery. The plagues and the exodus are designed to give them freedom from the many gods who might enslave them. The Bible describes idols as lifeless beings. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have mouths, they can't speak. They have noses, they can't smell. They have ears, but they cannot hear your prayers. They have hands, but they can't do anything with them. They have feet, but they cannot walk. And then where the Bible tells us all that about the lifelessness of idols, it goes on to say, so shall they be who worship them. Worship idols, you become like an idol. You become like what you worship. If your idol is dead and you serve a dead thing, then it's killing you. The Lord rescues Israel not just from idols and slavery. He rescues them from inert, dead idols who are, who are killing the, the Israelites. He worships, he, he delivers his people from death. The first word is a declaration of independence, a word of freedom, a command to walk in freedom before the one God because it's a command to walk in resurrection life, life that is free from all the dead idols that they served in Egypt. Well, Israel probably needed that. They still had Egyptians among them. 
There were probably idols being worshipped somewhere in Israel, even as they were camped at Sinai. We know that one big idol was made shortly after the Ten Commandments were given, a golden calf, and all the Israelites worshipped it. They need this commandment, but do we? I don't suppose any of you has a shrine in your basement. I don't suppose any, any of you makes a habit of invoking Allah in your prayers alongside Jesus and his Father. But we are still prone to idolatry, and we are still enslaved to the many idols that plague us. We're still polytheists, trying frantically to satisfy all the different demands and all the different gods that make their demands on us. To see how that's the case, we can look more carefully at exactly what this first word says. Thou shalt have no other gods before my face, is the literal translation of the commandment. What does it mean for an idol to be before the face of Yahweh? The most literal violation of this commandment would be to bring an image of a false god and set it inside the temple. And eventually, some kings of Israel do that. Manasseh famously puts an idol right inside the temple before the face of God. And he very deliberately and explicitly violates this commandment. He puts another god before the face of Yahweh, the god of the Exodus. But of course, that didn't mean that Israelites were free to worship idols elsewhere. As long as they hid from God, they were okay. For one thing, God can see their idols wherever they're hiding. It's not like you cannot have a God before the face of God. But the Old Testament also talks about idols of the heart. In Ezekiel 14, the Lord warns the prophet Ezekiel that their elders who are consulting with him are coming to him. They pretend like they want to hear the word of the Lord from the prophet. What they are in fact doing is bringing the idols of their hearts along with them as they consult the prophet. They're coming to the Lord's prophet, but they're bringing their idols with them. In fact, if you have idols in your heart, then you're taking your idols everywhere you go. If you have an idol in your heart and you go into the temple, even if you say you're worshiping the Lord, you have brought an idol before the face of God. And it's not like that's, that, that commandment or that, that idea is softened any, in any way in the New Testament. Where is the face of God for us? Where is the temple of the living God? Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? He dwells among us. He dwells in each of us. And if we set up idols in our hearts, if we cherish idols in our hearts, if we serve idols in our hearts, then we have put idols before the face of God just as surely as Manasseh did when he put that image inside the temple. We don't do that, do we? We don't worship false gods in our hearts. What does it mean to worship and serve the one God? Luther says the Lord, to, to worship and to keep this first word, is to love, serve the one God above all other things. To trust in, love, and serve him above all others. Isaiah says, the Lord is your judge. The Lord is your savior. The Lord is your lawgiver. Insofar as we are looking for approval to anyone, anyone, but the Lord. 
were serving a false god, setting up another as judge. Insofar as we're looking to someone else for our salvation and our health, for blessing, for an abundant life, we're serving an idol. Insofar as the the voice running in our heads, the voice that we actually listen to and obey, insofar as that voice is not the voice of the Lord, we've adopted another lawgiver. The Lord is not our lawgiver, but something else has become our lawgiver. Who is your judge? Whose assessment do you fear? Whose evaluation of you really determines how you're going to behave? Is it your peers? Do you live in fear of being considered uncool? Well, if you do, you're going to live in constant fear because the standards of cool constantly shift and change and you simply can't keep up. If you've made coolness your peer group, your judges... You're going to be tossed to and fro, just as much as an ancient polytheist is. Public opinion. The Pharisees, Jesus says in our gospel reading, prayed, they gave alms, they fasted, but why did they do all that? To seek the approval of the God who sees in secret? No. But to seek the approval of men. Who were their judges? Not God. They were looking for evaluation for a stamp of approval, not from the living God to whom they pretended to pray, but from their surrounding peers. Who is your judge? A hypercritical parent. Public opinion. Whose disapproval do you fear? If you're not looking to the Lord as your judge... If you're trying to satisfy the requirements of all these other judges, you've not only set up an idols or a set of idols, but you're also enslaved. You can't satisfy them all. There's no way to satisfy them all. They're contradictory demands that are placed on you. Cool means one thing over here. Cool means something else over here. You can't be cool in both places at the same time. Put away those idols. Remember that the Lord is judge. Keep the first word. Have you ever thought, if I just had a little more money, a little higher income, I'd be happy. Then everything would be easy. Everything would be fine. My life would be rich and full and I would be satisfied if I just had a bit more. Who are you looking to for blessing? Are you serving mammon? Have you organized your life so that you serve mammon? So that your main pursuit in life is to enrich yourself? You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You must either serve God and mammon. And you can't satisfy mammon anyway. It's slavery. You never have enough. You're never going to be satisfied. There's always more to get There's always more to earn. There's always more stuff you can buy. You'll never be satisfied. And you'll be enslaved by the tyrant's mammon. Shatter that idol. Remember that God is your Savior. Keep the first word. What happens when you get cornered? 
What happens when you get criticized? Do you admit, confess your sin? Trust in Jesus to bear your sin? Have you ever, perhaps, made somebody else your sin bearer? Have you ever loaded your wrongs on somebody else? Your husband or your wife challenges you. Instead of confessing your sin, you blame them, him or her. You blame the other. It's your fault. The reason I do this is because of what you do. You bear my sins. You be my scapegoat. You be my sin bearer. Jesus is our sin bearer, not your husband, not your wife, not your kids, not your friends, not society. Jesus alone is the sin bearer. Or maybe you like to just pile up your sins on yourself. Make yourself your own sin bearer. It'll crush you. It'll kill you. You can't bear your own sins. Don't try. Keep the first word. Remember that God is your Savior. You're not your own Savior. Nobody else is your sin bearer but Jesus. Trust in Him. Who is that? Whose voice is that in your head? Where does it come from? Not the voice that you say you're listening to. Not the Lord that you confess when you confess the creed. But what is the, who is the real Lord in your head? Whose voice are you really listening to? If you're listening to some other voice in the Lord, if some other voice drowns out or cancels out the voice from Sinai, the voice from the Sermon on the Mount, the voice of Jesus, then you've got an idol. You've got another lawgiver. And you need to put away that idol. Remember the first word. The Lord is your lawgiver. The first word is a declaration of independence. Walk in freedom before me. For us, Paul says, for us, there is one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Which means we don't have to worry about other judges. We don't have to seek help from other saviors. We have one Lord who speaks an authoritative word for us, and we just have to listen to that one voice, not thousands of different conflicting voices. Our lives can be coherent. Our lives can be free. But only as we are keeping the first word, remembering that the Lord alone is our judge. The Lord alone is our Savior. The Lord alone is our lawgiver. We might have private idols. We might have private idols in our heart. We might be struggling against various forms of idolatrous attachment. But surely in our world, there are no public idols. We pride ourselves on having scoured the public world of all signs of deity. The empty public square, everything is tolerated. Absolutely everything is tolerable. It doesn't work that way, as is becoming increasingly increasingly clear. There are gods in our public life, and they are jealous gods. The Romans were very tolerant. When they conquered peoples, they didn't wipe out the other's gods. They just adopted them. We just keep expanding the pantheon. As we conquer to the east, we bring eastern gods into our pantheon. There's some evidence that they offered the Christians the same deal. We'll leave you alone. We even give Jesus a statue in the pantheon. 
Jesus can be one of the gods of Rome. They're very tolerant. What they could not tolerate, what they could not tolerate, was were, were a group of people who refused to worship the many gods, who really and truly worshipped one god, who kept the first word. That was intolerable. That kind of intolerance was intolerable. When the Christian said, your gods are nothing, nothing, vanities, or your gods are demons, that they couldn't tolerate. And we know the story of what happened in Rome to the early Christians. Our world prides itself on its tolerance, but it's no more tolerant of our intolerant devotion to the one God than Rome was. And if we are truly devoted to the one God, truly keeping the first word, we're going to be on a collision course with the gods of our world. We're going to be on collision course with the gods of freedom. Whose voice are people encouraged to listen to? Well, listen to your heart. Follow your heart. Your heart is going to speak authoritatively. Mount Sinai is right inside you. And whatever Mount Sinai inside you says that you're supposed to do. We have all kinds of judges, many forms of evaluation and assessment. And if we refuse to conform to those judges, if we confess that there is one judge, one lawgiver, one savior, we're on a collision course with the world around us. There's another reason why we're on a collision course. We're on a collision course with the world around us because the first word is not just a command. The first word is also a mission statement. The first word is also a declaration of war. The Lord doesn't want Israel to just hunker down and privately worship him alone. They're supposed to be doing that on behalf of the nations. And the goal is that the nations too come to worship this one God. We see this in obviously in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is all about Israel's obedience or disobedience to the first word. What does obedience to the first word look like in the book of Joshua? It looks like throwing down images of false gods, shattering shrines, overthrowing altars, scouring and purifying and purging the land of idolatry. That's what, that's what obedience to the first word looks like. And Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to shatter the idols. Jesus came to purge the world of all gods, but his father. And then he calls us to follow him and to join that warfare. As Paul said in our epistle reading, we don't make war with physical fleshly weapons, but we do make war with spiritual weapons until all vanities are cast down, until every idol is overthrown. The first word is a mission statement, not only for Israel, but for the church. And the first word is also a pledge. It's a promise. It's the Lord's determination. It states the Lord's determination to have a world in which there are no other gods before his face. He calls us to follow him, to make war on the idols, our own idols, first of all, but also idols wherever they appear. And he assures us 
that that warfare will be successful. That there will come a day when there are no other gods before God. There will come a day when there is only one Lord and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The first word is for us. It challenges us to examine the idols of our hearts. It challenges us to follow our greater Joshua in his warfare against the idols. It challenges us to trust the God whose world will one day be free of all false gods and God himself will be all in all. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And he came to throw down idols wherever they appear. We pray that you would give us grace by his spirit to join in that great warfare against the idols of our world so that Jesus Christ and his name would be exalted so that you might be all in all, that there may be no other gods before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.